So we're going to talk about abortion tonight. And this is a heavy, weighty, significant, and relevant topic that the scriptures have much to say about, believe it or not. And to be honest with you, I, I, I struggle with even you know, looking up statistics and doing the research and thinking hard. And it, this is like cinder blocks in a backpack for me. Okay. So that I'm coming at this with a heavy heart. Um, and I just, part of me almost wishes we didn't have to do this series, you know, like if there was no such thing as abortion, if there was no such thing as, uh, overstepping of government, if there was no such thing as, you know, perverted sexuality. And it just, I want heaven. I, I have a, uh, a longing for all to be right, for justice to be served, and for God to wrap this thing up. Anyone else with me? Do you long for the new heavens and the new earth and to, to say, God, please, come Lord Jesus, come. Um, so, in keeping with our series, The Cursed In Between, we fall into a storyline of creation, fall, redemption, recreation. And we really, as church leaders here, we want you to have a biblical view of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And this is the basic storyline of the Bible, that God created the world good with no evil. Behold, God saw all he made, and it was very good. Even the angels, very good. And in Genesis 3, everything went wrong. Eve was deceived by the serpent, the devil, the archangel, if you will, capital A, himself full of pride, rebelling against God, bringing a, a third of the angels with him, now demons, highly intellectual, personal, spiritual evil that is against Christians and is against the image of God. Whether Christian or not, friends, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 clearly says that all people, no matter how messed up they are or how many people that they've murdered or, and are in prison for, they're still in the image of God. No matter what their political views are, they're still in the image of God. No matter how many crimes they've committed, they're still in the image of God. You can't wipe it out. And for that reason... God told Noah that when you murder someone, you are murdering the image of God. That's why it's wrong. That's why it's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. Friends, we're going to talk about abortion or what Planned Parenthood softens and calls averted pregnancies. And again, this is a weighty, weighty subject. This message is well-sourced, and there were, there's a lot of footnotes, and they're going to be available on a resource page on the sermon website. So if you go to eternalcity.org, click on this message, which will appear tomorrow, little resource tab on the bottom left. All of the sources that I cite will be on there for your further research, or research and I would commend that to you. For many of us in this room, this is not theoretical. This is not abstract. This is something that you deal with on a regular basis. These are people, there are people that you know personally that are, this is their issue. They've either had an abortion or you're working with the after effects of people who have had an abortion. And 
I would imagine that in a room like this, there's probably even people who have, may have had that done. And I want to be sensitive to that. Uh, I have talked to personally to people who have had abortions, and it, it doesn't go without long-term effects on the woman who's had that procedure. And that's kind of the aim I want to have here. I, I don't want to... So this message is not going to be like me at a pro-life rally firing up the troops. It's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to you as if you were on the fence on this issue. As if you think maybe this is a good thing, that abortions are legal and that women have this choice. That's the way I'm going to speak. I'm going to try to speak persuasively to you from the Bible to try to get you to see that the Bible is not pro-abortion, okay? So I'm going to try to be loving, I'm going to try to be sensitive, and I'm going to try to be persuasive. Just putting it all out there for you. No manipulation, okay? That's what I'm going to do. So, will we, in this 2018 drift along the stream of this world's ideas of living? Or will we look deeply into the scriptures as God's revealed word and see what he has to say about his creation? And will we line up our worldview and the way we live and the way we conduct ourselves with his word, his message to humanity? See, friends, I don't have to tell you that there is many voices competing for your view of the world. Every day, voices, voices, some loud, some soft, some angry, some happy, some persuasive, some not so persuasive. There are voices vying for your allegiance. And we as Christians, friends, we owe allegiance to one person ultimately. You need to know that. That's part of what being a Christian is, is to say, I owe allegiance to Jesus Christ. He is the supreme one. And all others fall under him. And the questions we have to ask ourselves as Christians is this. If there's clarity on an issue in the scriptures, which is God's word revealed to us, will we say, yes, I agree? Will we, in a sense, bow the knee to Jesus as Lord? Or will we say, no, I, I got to go with the culture. I got to go with my party politically on this. I got to go with my professors on this. I got to go with my thoughts and desires on this. Friends, I want you as Christians, if you would claim to be a Christian, to see that we have God's will revealed to us clearly. Many of us want to know, what God, what is your will? What is your will? What is your will? He has laid it out very clearly. We don't have to guess. We just have to read his book. Sometimes study it because it's complex. But if we will read it, much of it is very understandable. And on this issue, I don't think the Bible is fuzzy even a little. It's not gray. It's black and white. So we're going to go through Psalm 139. I think there's a lot of texts we could go to, but this is the text on this issue. David the first, I'm sorry, the second king of Israel. He was a musician, he was a songwriter, he was a theologian, and he was a man after God's own heart. 
though a sinner, a murderer, a man who stole another man's wife. He betrayed him and had him killed to save his own skin. So this man is not a righteous man who wrote this, but he's a forgiven sinner like all of us. And isn't that good news to failing and faltering people that a man after God's own heart could also be a murderer? And in a sense, I would go so far as to say a rapist, because if you're the king, a woman can't technically say no to you if you're bringing in your soldiers and forcing yourself upon someone. Yeah, I just called King David a a rapist, because I think that's kind of what happened in the story. And a murderer, and a betrayer, capital B, yet a man forgiven, a man after God's own heart, and Psalm 51 is his word of repentance. I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And he wrote this. It's profound. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. This knowing, searching, knowing when David sits up and when he lays down, he discerns, God discerns his thoughts from afar. This is so fascinating that David says to his son Solomon, the successor to his throne, uh, the offspring of the woman that he raped and then married after killing the husband, that woman, Bathsheba, has a son named Solomon who takes the throne. Okay? Have you read your Bible? Do you know this story? You know, the Bible is grimy, friends. Like, someone just told me they made a Samson movie. Anyone see it yet, the Samson movie? My friend saw it. He's not a Christian, sympathetic to Christianity. I said, was it grimy? Was it rated R? Because that story is grimy. Like, gritty, grimy. Nasty. Like, you could easily make that NC-17. Easy. He kills thousands of, of people. You could make that a violent 300-type movie, Samson, and it would be accurate to the Scriptures. I mean, the Bible is not a PG or G-rated book, friends. It's real. It's raw. It's grimy. Read your Bible and, and study it closely. So Solomon is taking the throne. David has repented at this point. Okay? He, God has forgiven him. And, and, and I feel the need to do this. If I was preaching Romans right now, which we will eventually, we'll go through Romans, but if I was in chapter 3, I would bring up that God passed over the sins formerly committed and he waited to put them on one who would be the sin bearer so that he could be just and the justifier of those who have faith. In other words, David's actions of sin his raping, his murdering, his betrayal. Jesus took that on the cross. That's what the end of Romans 3 says very clearly. That's how David could get away with that quote-unquote. Because Jesus was treated like he lived David's life, friends. And if that's so hard to grasp, that how can you pause on punishment and then wait and put it on David's greater son. Well, it's the same with you working backwards. 
You've committed sins in the late 20th century and in the 21st century here, right? And it goes backwards 2,000 years onto Jesus. We're, we're very similar to David and how David was treated. So again, David is take, giving advice to his son on the throne. And in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, this is the same David who wrote Psalm 139, says this to Solomon. Listen closely. You, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father, that would be David, and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. That's huge. Do you hear that? The Lord searches all hearts. The heart is the central piece of you. It's your motivation structure. It's where everything flows out of. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows all the issues of life. Everything flows out of the heart. And David here is telling Solomon that God searches every heart. Every heart. And understands every plan and thought that you have and that I have. Like sometimes my motives are fuzzy to me. They're foggy to me. I don't always know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Do you ever do something? You're like, why did I just do that? you like me? Yeah. But God's like, I know. It's very clear to me. He, every single person on the planet, all 8 billion of us, he knows every heart understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, David says, he will be found by you. Good news. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. It's incredible. He says in verse three, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Literally, you could translate that, you have measured my traveling and my stretching out to rest. Like I, I have a mile tracker on my phone. It's called Mile IQ. It's a fantastic app. Everywhere I go, it's watching me from satellite, tracking my every move, probably listening to me too, sending all kinds of transcripts to Google. I love it. But it's a great app, despite its potential conspiracy theory tendencies. And literally, when I am here right now, I'm just moving a little bit. Like it, tell, it could tell I'm taking steps, but I'm not leaving the premises, so it knows I'm not driving around. Listen, God is greater than that app. He literally, GPS style, tracks us our every move, even when you stretch out on your bed to lay down. That's what that text is saying. That's incredible. Most of us don't think that way. But what if you meditated on that? What would that do to your actions? Would you click on that site on your phone? Would you have that conversation? Would you watch that? I, I don't know. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But would it change things if you knew that literally your path is being searched out and you're lying down, God is acquainted with every move you make. Nothing's hidden. It's all clear to him. 
Friends, that's frightening in one sense, but in another sense, it's really encouraging that God is that near and that intimate. Ever before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. That's amazing. That before you speak, and remember, from the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus told us. God knows all of it. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. In fact, Proverbs 16.1 would tell us this. The plans of the heart belong to man. right? So the inner you makes all these plans. And they're your plans. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In other words, God gives even the ability to speak and to form sentences and to articulate and to bring all the complexity out of your brain through your vocal cords, out through your tongue, and in understandable ways for other people to process. That's incredible to me if you would ponder that. In his heart, in the innermost part of a person, he's plotting, he's planning, she's plotting, she's planning, she's thinking out decisions, yet God is even the controller of the tongue to articulate what's happening on the inside. That's what Proverbs 16 says. It's how intimate he's involved with every one of us. Proverbs 16 would also tell us that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Lots in the Old Testament were ways that people would allow God to make decisions for them. It was kind of like rolling dice or drawing straws. It's how Jonah was decided that he was the one who God was offended at and the sea was raging because of, and he got the bad deal of the straw. And so they threw him in to the water and all was calm. Matthias, the the 12th apostle to replace Judas, was chosen by lot. Dice, if you will. So that proverb is literally saying that every decision ultimately comes from God. And that blows our minds, and it should. How can we be 100% free and make choices, and God be 100% sovereign over every decision, every word of the tongue? How is that possible? He's God. And both are true, and they're not contradictory. And just because we can't figure that out doesn't mean it's not true. It's a mystery. A mystery means it's a truth that we don't understand yet. It's kind of like black holes. No one's ever come out to tell us how it all works. Though I really like the Interstellar movie. That's a good shot at it. If you haven't seen it, see it. So, before words on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. Verse 5, you hem me in. Hem, that means like you're around me. Hem me in. Behind and before. And lay your hand upon me. You are intimately involved with me, David says to God. Such knowledge, verse 6, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Now we're talking about, so we were just talking about the omniscience of God, omni, all, science, knowing, all, knowing. Now we're going to talk about the omnipresence of God, his being all places all the time. So David says, where can I go to hide from you? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? 
Friends, we know that much sin is committed in the darkness. Why are the clubs that women get tips for taking their clothes off of always dark and dreary? Friends, people don't like to be in bright light and commit shameful acts, do they? They like to hide in the darkness. But you know what? Even the light and darkness are the same to God. He sees right into the darkness. David says in verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol literally means the underworld or the world of the dead. There is a world where dead people live. They're there now. Sheol. There's a place that people are waiting for the lake of fire, the the final death, the outer darkness that Revelation speaks of. It's, It's not here yet, but there is a Sheol. It's mysterious. But Baker Encyclopedia says about this word this. In the Old Testament... It is a place where the dead have their abode, a hollow space underneath the earth where the dead are gathered in. Synonyms for Sheol are pit, death, and destruction. Sheol is a place of shadows and utter silence. Here, all existence is in suspense, yet it is not a non-place like utopia, but rather a place where life is no more. It is described as the land of forgetfulness. Those who dwell there cannot praise God, Psalm 88, 10 to 12. In Revelation, it is called the bottomless pit, presided over by Abaddon, the prince of the pit, Revelation 9, 11. That's frightening. And David says, if I go there, that place, you're there. Isn't that crazy? You can't get away from God even in the place of the dead, wherever Sheol is the bottomless pit. I used to have nightmares about the bottomless pit when I was a kid. This is one of the dangers of being a Sunday school kid. I used to dream about falling and never stopping. It was just dark. It was terrifying. Anyone ever have that dream as a kid? Yeah, thank you. We have a a similar nightmare. All right, good. (laughs) If I take the wings of the morning, verse 9, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me. So what, what is David saying here by all this flowery language? He's saying we could say up, down, left, right. We could say north, south, east, west. We could say breadth, length, height, depth. God is there. You can't escape his presence. He is everywhere all at once by his spirit. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as a light with you. Utter darkness is like light to God. It's not dark to him. It's dark to us. He sees it all. There is no hiding from God. Nowhere. And in the female womb, friends, God sees. And not just sees, but he is active in that dark place. This is the next section of Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. 
That means his innards, his brain and his respiratory system and his blood circulation system and his nervous system and his personality. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. Where? In my mother's womb. David is saying here literally that God is at work in the womb of every woman who is pregnant. That's what he's saying. I don't know how much clearer that could be. And listen, if David is saying, you were at work on me in my mother's womb, that's personhood. That is not a fetus. It's a person made in the image of God. Alive. With eternality attached. Friends, you realize that every person will last forever. And David is saying, in my mother's womb, I was eternally alive. And so it is with every woman that's pregnant. You have an eternal soul growing inside your body. And David says that God is at work knitting together the complexities of the human body. He says in verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret. We have no idea how God does his masterful creativity inside of the womb. But David is saying that I was being formed and it was not hidden from you. You were active and at work intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven. And I'll tell you about some intricacies in just a minute. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth is poetry for the womb, a hidden place, deep in darkness, mystery, and remember, this is before sonograms. This is before the 3D sonograms, right? Like when Megan and I got the sonogram for our daughter, we were amazed. We put the picture of the sonogram on the fridge. It was not a fetus to us. This was a person, a baby. So this was written before sonogram technology, friends. This was written before we could test the pain sensors in unformed children. And, and the better science is getting, the better Psalm 139 is lining up with science. And I'm going to pause here for just a second and say, I think that as technology advances and we can go and find out more and more and more, I think what's going to happen is Abortion is going to be seen as one of the evils that we were blind to. I know I'm, I'm now getting bold, but I really think that this is going to be the case. Friends, after there was a shooting here in Wilkinsburg, um, you know, a couple years ago, uh, an execution-style shooting, I met with several African-American men. I was the only white guy in the room. And we were talking politics, of course. And we were talking abortion. And I said, friends, listen, we all, we all abhor and denounce slavery. 
we see that as a historical evil. Everyone who was on the side of slavery was on the wrong side of history. And I said, friends, abortion is going to be the same way in the future. You watch. As the technology advances and they find out more and more about what Psalm 139 is clearly telling us, I think future generations are going to look back the way we look back on slavery and be like, how could you not have seen it? How could you not have seen it? I think our grandkids' grandkids are going to be like, my grandma was for abortion. How can this be? I may be stepping out on a limb, but I'm on it. I'm already hanging. Your eyes, verse 16, saw my unformed substance. Listen to this. In your book were written every one of them. What, David? The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Unbelievable. God's sovereign decree before things are. Now that gets into the whole thing of God's sovereignty and how do we even have abortion right now. I'll I'll hit that in just a minute. The days that were formed for me, as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I could count them or if I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So David is, is blown away by, as Eric Mason says, the massivity of God. His omniscience, his omnipresence, his brilliant capital C creativeness. And David had no clue the scientific biology that we have now. He had no idea. And so let me read you very quickly this article or a portion of this article from Time Magazine. The human brain has 86 billion neurons. You know what a neuron is? It's a nerve cell. 86 billion each brain, your brain. All interconnected, all of them, which allows for multiple trillions of neural pathways, which make up you, your experiences, your personality, the way you think. I mean, it is a massive complex machine inside your head that you're using right now to hear me with. It's making some of your hearts beat. It's making some of your throats dry up. What's happening? The neural pathways, the 86 billion brain nerve cells are working. And yet we don't give it any mind. David had no clue. He had no clue. And yet... These provide hundreds of trillions of neural pathways for computing. You have inside your head the amount of storage capacity of the entire internet. In your head, right now, you have as much storage capacity as the 2018 internet. Inside your head. That blows me away. I remember R.C. Sproul telling a story about talking to a neurologist. And he said, you know, the more we find out about the human brain, I keep getting these eerie, haunting ideas of judgment day that God's just going to plug in our own brain 
and play for us our entire lives from our own eyes, our own mouths, and our own ears. And the judgment will be based on absolute truth from our own experience. What if your brain is the book that is opened in Revelation 20, 11 through 15? And the books were open and the dead were judged according to what was written in the books. What if the books are digital and it's inside your head and you can't escape it? Oh, what's that? Let's rewind that video a little bit. Play. You can't deny it. Every mouth will be silenced under the judgment of God. Imagine all of your thoughts, motives, words, actions on a giant 4K or better jumbotron being played from your own brain with God watching right there with you. Can you imagine that? We don't know for sure, but maybe. I think as brain science improves, we will see more and more complexity, not less. I think, I think of the human brain and the human body. Like, you know, we, we learned about cells, and now we know that cells are more like factories. L- literally factories with working train cars. You do realize that you can cut yourself, and within weeks, your body heals itself. And we're just like, oh, I cut myself. <laughs> Friends, God has created a machine that is unbelievable if you'll take the time to ponder a little bit. The reproductive system, oh my gosh. The way your eyes work, the the massive complexity of information inside your DNA that no one else has. And friends, the science is just going to get better and better and better. And Psalm 139 is going to be confirmed, confirmed, confirmed. It will be. Let's talk answersingenesis.org for just a minute. So Planned Parenthood is one of the leading providers of abortion, and I'm well aware that it's not the only thing that Planned Parenthood does. Planned Parenthood actually only, the amount of their abortion providing is only 3% of what they do. Okay, we'll get into that in just a moment. But you need to know this, friends. Okay, it's supported by the government, And its founder name was Margaret Sanger, and she was a eugenicist. Let me read you just a portion of this article. Okay, this article is called Planned Parenthood, a commentary on its history history and philosophy. It's by Wendy Wright. Planned Parenthood began as the dream of Margaret Sanger, a pro-eugenic, pro-abortion advocate. Between 1920 and 1922, Sanger launched the American Birth Control League, ABCL, the forerunner of Planned Parenthood. This organization was founded to maintain a so-called, quote-unquote, fit nation and keep society from being filled with, in the words of Sanger, quote, the most far-reaching peril to the future of civilization, unquote, referring to people of different ethnic groups. She was a eugenicist like Hitler. The ABCL thus targeted low-income families 
as those most in need of birth control. In 1942, after the Nazi horrors discredited outright eugenics, the killing of the unfit in order to breed a master race, the ABCL was renamed Planned Parenthood. At that time, the organization's affiliates made legal access to unrestricted abortion a high priority. As one medical director stated, you can't get adequate fertility control with contraceptions alone. You have got to grapple with sterilization and abortion. You realize that Hitler took the atheistic survival of the fittest worldview into action. And he was going to eliminate what he thought were lesser ethnicities, quote unquote races. That's what the founder of Planned Parenthood wanted to do too. It's well documented, friends. I'm not a Christian conspiracy theorist. That was what she wanted to do. She wanted to eliminate who society, the elites thought lesser, the lower income and other ethnicities than herself and the elites. Well documented. Planned Parenthood's annual report in 2016 to 2017, I'm going to quote from it right now. It's in the notes. You can go on and look at these things yourself. Even though only 3% of the medical services provided by Planned Parenthood were abortions, that adds up to 321, 384,000 deaths of children. It's a lot. That was just in 2016 and 2017. Now, thankfully, when you look at a chart and you see from the, the 70s when abortion was made legal, massive spike up into the 80s, and then you see a decline, decline, decline. Actually, that 2016 to 17 was the lowest number of abortions ever in history, which says to me, this is a good sign. This is a good sign. I hope and pray next year it's even less and less and less, and I hope that brain... Uh, neurologists and uh, you know biologists continue to do their research and we see more and more and society gets more and more upset let's keep going who has abortions so the Guttmacher Institute which Planned Parenthood uses for their own statistics this is not a Christian organization created to destroy Planned Parenthood this is their own statistic organization that they use. Listen to this, friends, closely. 75% of abortion patients in 2014 were poor or low income. 26% of patients had incomes 100 to 199% of the federal poverty level, and 49% had incomes less than 100% of the federal poverty level, which is $15,730 for a family of two. The poorest of the poor in America are the ones getting the most abortions, which is exactly what Margaret Sanger and her people were trying to do. They're accomplishing their mission, friends. It's clearly stated and documented. It's not a conspiracy theory. From the, from the founder's own mouth, 
More than half of U.S. abortion patients in 2014 were in their 20s. Patients aged 20 to 24 obtained 34% of all abortions. Patients aged 25 to 29 obtained 27%. 12% of abortion patients in 2014 were adolescents. Those aged 18 to 19 accounted for 8% of all abortions. 15 to 17-year-olds for 3%, and those younger, it's younger than 15, for 0.2%, thankfully. Ready for this one? This is rough. White patients accounted for 39% of abortion procedures in 2014, blacks for 28%, Hispanics for 25%, and patients of other races and ethnicities, 9%. Now that may seem like, oh, okay, well, white people are getting the most abortions. Friends, 13, 13% of the population is African American. And how many of that 13% of the entire population got abortions? Listen, 28%. Friends, it's well documented that there were more African-American babies aborted in New York City than born. Friends, if you don't think this is a satanic conspiracy to destroy the image of God, I don't know what else to say. of abortion patients in 2014, this is terrifying, identified as mainline Protestant, 13% as evangelical Protestant, and 24% as Catholic. 38% reported no religious affiliation, and the remaining 8% reported some other affiliation. Friends, who gets the brunt of this movement, the pro-choice movement? Did you catch it? the poor, and the minorities. Which is exactly what Margaret Sanger set out to do. And I don't know how to make it any more clear than that. And if you don't think that's satanic, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Friends, we need to wake up. It is not loving for this to be going on. It is not compassionate. Okay, so let's talk real quick. I got a minute left about what we can do about this. Okay, not everybody is going to do the same thing. But I think we all should be doing something. Okay, uh, imagine Uber. Many of you have either taken an Uber or you drive for Uber. Imagine if Uber had all drivers. Like no one do, on the technology end working the app. No one on the finance end working the finance. No one in the human resources end working the, all the discrepancies. I mean, the company would fall apart. In the same way, friends, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a body with many parts, is it not? Can the hand say to the eye, well, because you're not a hand, you're no good. And in the same way, when we talk about social action, which I guess this is a part of that, We need to say not everybody will be doing the same exact thing in the same exact way. All right, Chris, well, what are you doing? Well, my wife and I have been on the adoption end of this issue for the past three years now. Friends, there are agencies, I can give you the number and name of ours, who will gladly, lovingly embrace a mother who is hurting and help them out for free, not just for free, will give them what they need in the form of gift cards, in the form of health care, in the form of help. 
all the way to delivery and into the hands of a loving Christian family. That is a really good alternative to termination. Friends, not all of us are going to be outside with the signs and outside of the actual abortion clinics trying to dissuade people. Though for some, they do need to be there. What has God called you to do? Has he called you to pray? Maybe he's calling you right now to make up your mind. Like, maybe you're on the fence on this issue. And God's saying today, today's the day. Your action step is to make up your mind on this issue. Make up your mind. Because really, the only people we can control in this world is us. Let's remember, we say, man, we say we're for the powerless. We say we're for the voiceless. We say we're for the oppressed. Who is more powerless, voiceless, and oppressed than the unborn? There is no other people group. Friends, and if we won't speak up for them, who will? So I think that all of us need to be taking action, but the action is going to look different for all of us. But all of us need to be doing something. As I said, I think in in generations to come, they're going to look back and they're going to be like, where was my grandma and grandpa on this issue? I don't think that's too far of a stretch to say. I think that those who are pro-life, if you will, and I don't want to politicize this because I think that would be a great error. Okay, if you're pro-life, that doesn't mean you have to be a Republican, okay? I'm not calling you all to be conservative Republicans. I think, along with Scott Sauls, that those who we interact with should not be able to pin us down politically. We should be very confusing to people observing us. Like, wait a minute, you sound like a liberal, but over here you sound like a conservative. Who are you? <laughs> You'll never know, you know? It should be like that. Because we're not all one-ticket people, friends. The Bible's not that simplistic. And listen, we should be four, 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 the mothers, friends. The mothers are the ones who are often caught in the middle of this. They're not the enemy. They're not to be destroyed. They're not to be, you know, bombarded with hate mail, digital hate mail. Friends, the mothers are the ones that need loved and reached out to and cared for. Because often they're hurting and confused and sometimes they're being forced against their will. And and not all the time, but often. And friends, if we will advocate and love the mothers. So imagine this. Let's imagine that all the abortion clinics all over the world stayed open, but all the mothers said no. Wouldn't matter if the abortion clinics were open, would it? See, the issue is people here. It's not that we need to close down clinics, though that would be good. What we need to do is get to the hearts of people. And the the only person's heart that you have any influence over really is you. And then maybe lovingly, you can talk to some other people. But friends, on this issue, we must not be silent. And at the same time, we must not be self-righteously arrogant and attack people. Like, if you shout louder and become angrier, 
it's not going to do anything. So we need to pray and we need to ask God, where do you want me in on this? Maybe you and your family need to go through the adoption process. It is a sacrifice. And depending on if you go out of the country, it's like a thirty dollars to $40,000 sacrifice. But it's worth it for the life of a child, friends. Can you put a price tag on that? And there are all kinds of agencies and grants and people that are more than willing to help fund that. And it's needed, needed, needed. So let's be pro-hurting mother. Yes, please. Let's be pro-hurting mother and go after their hearts and say, we love you, please. They're not our enemies. Let's be pro-unborn child, made in the image of God, without a voice. And let's say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? It will be a sacrifice, but we need to know this, friends, that Jesus sacrificed for us. It's kind of the essence of Christianity, isn't it? He laid down his life for us that we might lay down our lives for others. Okay? Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. And if you remember, what was Satan doing about the time that Jesus was born? What was he up to in the form of killing children? Anyone remember? That's right. Herod sent out his minions, the king, to destroy all the young boys. And isn't it interesting that Pharaoh did the same thing about the time of Moses? You see, this is a satanic pattern. And friends, I'm going to be bold right now. We dress it up in 2018 with clean clinics and really beautiful annual reports. I mean, I wish we could have as nice an annual report as Planned Parenthood. It's nice. They got famous rappers on their side and everything. But friends, we as Christians must choose where am I going to land on this issue and how, God, do you want me to take some action? And remember, Jesus sacrificed for us that we might give up our lives for those who are hurting and helpless and voiceless.